You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. You can go ahead and start finding your way towards the book of Micah. And if you need to go to the table of contents first, hey, that's fine. All right. Micah. Micah chapter 5. I hope everyone is uh, doing well on this week thus far. On Wednesday nights, we have been working through... Uh, some great doctrines of the faith and trying to uh, demonstrate or show how these doctrines uh, relate to our lives, why they are important for us to understand. And not just important for us to understand, but important for us to stand on, to to, uh, believe these doctrines and to stand for these doctrines because they are of great importance. And We've talked about some different aspects of theology. We've talked about the doctrine of God. We've talked about the doctrine of revelation, how God reveals himself to us. We've talked about the doctrine of humanity, uh, who we are and and what our issues are and and how those issues can be fixed. Well, tonight we're going to begin a, a look at, and we won't finish tonight, but we'll begin to look at the doctrine of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. We're going to uh, begin to think about Jesus tonight uh, and study some doctrinal realities concerning Jesus and think about why it matters to us. Now, if you look there in your notes, Right underneath the phrase, the doctrine of Christ, that first blank is the person of Christ. Because in classic theology, again, the doctrine of Christ usually um, has two headings. Most theologians look at the person of Christ and then the work of Christ. Much like we uh, did with um, the doctrine of God. But the the person of Christ and the work of Christ. We're going to begin tonight by talking about the person of Christ, and then we'll transition in coming coming weeks to talk about the work of Christ. Let's begin by talking about the person of Christ. When we say the person of Christ, we're we're talking about who Christ is uh, in his essence and his uh, nature. And really just two aspects I want to talk about tonight related to um, the person of Christ. Uh, First of all, I want to talk about Jesus before he was born of the Virgin Mary. I'm going to call this Christ in eternity past. Christ in eternity past. Now this is really, really important because a a, a lot of people mistakenly think that Jesus came into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. Now when I was born to Buddy and Debbie Humphreys on May 18th, 1976. I, that was my, I was coming into existence. But the birth of Jesus was not his, um, his coming into existence. It was simply a transition for him. We'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. But before we understand the incarnation, we need to understand 
Jesus in eternity past. And we're going to start there in Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says there, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this is a messianic prophecy. It's pretty extraordinary that hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, uh, the Old Testament prophesied precisely where he would be born. But notice it mentions something of the nature of the one who would be born. It says there that uh, he is he, he's coming to be a ruler, and his coming forth is from, a mold, from of old, from ancient days. And so this speaks of Christ pre-existing uh, his birth or his coming to this earth. And it's all throughout the scriptures. Let me show you some New Testament scriptures that really teach this. We may not look at all of them, but look in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. Well-known passage of scripture. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we are introduced here to the Word, the, the, the Logos. And there's some interesting facts about this one who is called the Word. It said the Word was with God. So there's a distinction here between the Word and God, or we might say God the Father. A distinction between the Word and God uh, the Father. Um, because he was with him. That word with is an interesting word in this context. It, it means something like face-to-face. They were in communion with one another at, at the very beginning uh, of all things. You go all the way back to the beginning, and there was God. There was the Word in perfect communion. And then to make sure we're clear, it says the Word was God. The Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this verse speaks of Jesus Christ being there, the word, at the beginning of all things. And I'll, I'll show you a verse a little bit later in John that, that helps us understand the word refers specifically to Jesus Christ. Um, but look uh, over with me in uh, verse... Uh, or chapter 8 of John. John chapter 8. This is Jesus in a confrontation. End of John chapter 8. Jesus in a uh, conversation with the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders. And uh, he is... uh, infuriating them with what he says. And I want to show you why they are so um, angry. He says in verse 56, at the end of this conversation, John chapter 8, verse 56, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So he's saying, you call Abraham the, the patriarch, the great patriarch. You call him your father. The Jewish people come from Abraham, from the lineage of Abraham, from the descendants of Abraham. But he says, Abraham, if you really uh, hold Abraham in high esteem, you need to understand that Abraham saw me. He, he saw my day and was glad. And so the Jews asked kind of a logical question there in verse 57. They said, 
you are not yet 50 years old and yet you have seen Abraham? How's that work? How's that work that you were around Abraham even though you're only 50 and Abraham lived thousands of years ago? Jesus said to them, listen to this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? What's he say? I am. He's saying there, I pre-existed Abraham. I pre-existed Abraham, which is an extraordinary statement. And just to get the point across, he uses the phrase, ego, I, me, I am, which is a reference to the divine name of God given by the Lord to Moses at the burning bush. I am who I am. So when he said, I am, they knew he was claiming to be divine. And they flew into a rage. Look in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They were ready to kill him at that moment because of his claim of preexistence, his claim of being the great I am, his claim of being God. And so this verse speaks of Jesus existing before Abraham. The question becomes, well, what was Jesus doing before he came to this earth? Well, we've already seen in John 1 that he was instrumental in creating the heavens and the earth. It says everything was created through him in John 1. Uh, but what was he doing before the creation? Because we believe in the eternality of God, that God has always existed. There's never been a time where God has not existed. It hurts your brain to think about it. But God has just always been there. He, he, was, he, he was not brought into existence. He's always existed. And in John 17, we get a little bit of a clue as to what was happening in eternity past. Look what it says in John 17, verse 5. He's praying to the Father, praying for his disciples. This is on the night when he would be betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. And he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so he's saying before there was even creation, before there was a, a solar system or a cosmos or a universe, uh, we were there. And I was there with you, Lord, enjoying glory in your presence uh, and he said, I want to I get back to that point where I'm in your presence again with unhindered glory. And so he speaks of being there with God the Father before creation. And then look in verse 24 of the same chapter. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. So he's speaking of his disciples here. I want to bring them home to heaven. Look what he says. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So again, before creation, God was there. We know when we refer to God, we're, we're speaking of a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So before creation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit lived in perfect communion, perfect glory, perfect love, uh, perfect relationship uh, in the, 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 the Godhead. And that was taking place before creation ever came into being. Let me show you one more verse. Look, look over in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. New Testament book of Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 17. Look what he says there. He, speaking here of Jesus, he is before what? All things. And in him, in him all things hold together. So that verse speaks of Jesus pre-existing all things. So Jesus Christ is eternal. Here's the way I want to sum all of this up. 
Christ has existed from eternity past as the second person of the Trinity. Christ has existed from eternity past as the second person of the Trinity. Christ is eternal. But let's go to the next blank. Let's talk about the incarnation because something changed about 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ came to this earth and was born of the Virgin Mary. We call that the incarnation. It was a major moment in human history, major moment in redemptive history. It was a moment when everything changed. And the incarnation, the word incarnate, it comes from the Latin incarnate, it means in flesh, in flesh. So the incarnation was a major moment. And, and here's what happened at the incarnation. The incarnation was not Jesus coming into existence. I think I've shown you he's always been in existence. The incarnation was when Christ left the splendor and glory of heaven to take on human flesh. He left the splendor and glory of heaven to take on human flesh. So remember back in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You say, well, who is the Word? In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible clearly says, the, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, speaking of Jesus Christ. And so uh, Jesus Christ is the one who took on human flesh. That is called the incarnation. And it is a a major, major reality because before the incarnation, Jesus existed as the second person of the Trinity. Since the incarnation, he's existed as the second person of the Trinity, but he's also existed as the God-man. He became the God-man at the moment of the incarnation when he took on Humanity, And so the Incarnation is a, is a precious, precious doctrine. We celebrate it, of course, at Christmas, but it is a reality that should uh, color every area and aspect of our faith. I came across a poem when I was studying this that I thought was powerful. It, uh, and it speaks of Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth. The author is unknown, and it, it simply reads like this. Light looked down and beheld darkness. Thither will I go, said Light. Life looked down and beheld death. Thither will I go, said life. Love looked down and beheld despair. Thither will I go, said love. So came light and shone truth. So came life and conquered death. So came love and gave hope. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, in concert with the the perfect plan of the triune God, saw the... The, the, the death, the despair, the, the, the um, state of man, the state of humanity, and he chose to come and do something about our helpless estate. And so that speaks of the incarnation. Now for this to happen, for Jesus to leave perfect splendor and glory, now think about Jesus in heaven. He's, he's receiving unceasing worship. Every moment, his worth is being declared. His majesty is being celebrated. His his glory is being enjoyed by the angelic host. And so every moment of, of Jesus in heaven, he is being celebrated because he is worthy of that worship. But think about it. He left that to come to this earth where he would be mocked, maligned, 
mistreated, misunderstood, beaten, crucified, buried. He left all of that to come to this earth. This act called for divine condescension. And there's a really important passage, maybe my favorite Christological passage, found in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Turn there with me. Philippians chapter 2. This might be a familiar passage to you. Look in verse 3. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of Christians in the first century city of Philippi. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Can I just take a quick pause? That verse will really help you. If you will, if you will learn to, to live out that verse by the power of God's Spirit, it will make a difference in your relationships. It will make a difference in your workplace. It will make a difference in your family. make a difference in your church. It will just make a difference. And why should we pursue this kind of attitude where we lay down selfishness, we lay down conceit, and we live in humility, putting others ahead of ourselves? Why should we seek to live that way? Well, the illustration is this. That's what Jesus did. Jesus exemplified what it means to... Lay down, lay down self for others. He says there in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to define how Jesus lived out this others first attitude. How he condescended for us. Look what it says. Though he was in the form of God... Did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he wasn't grasping or straining for divinity because he was God. Second person of the Godhead. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to be God. He was God. And it says there, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so this verse speaks of Jesus condescending, leaving the unceasing worship of heaven to take on humanity and live among us. He came down. He, you might say he, he lowered himself to our level. That's what that word emptied means. The, the Greek word there is kenosis. And there's a lot of discussion about kenosis and what it means that Jesus emptied himself. But basically it means that Jesus Christ laid aside the full rights and prerogatives of deity. He, he took on the, 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 the frailties and limitations of human flesh to live among us. It does not mean that Jesus ceased being God. Uh, and, and we see that in a very practical, logical way in the Gospels. I mean, he walked on water, right? I mean, that speaks of his divinity. He, he calmed the, the storm and the seas with just one word. That speaks of his divinity. He, he, he raised people from the dead. That speaks of his divinity. So he did, not, he did not cease being God. The emptying means he laid down the full rights and prerogatives of deity to take on humanity. That's what that word means. And again, he did that. Ultimately, we'll talk about this in a moment. He did that for you and for me. He condescended. He, he, he left heaven and came to earth. Here's how Danny Aiken says it. He's a professor at Southeast, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He writes... Jesus did not surrender his deity, but he did surrender his glory. He became, in a sense, God incognito. I like that phrase. You know, when, when Jesus was walking around the earth, you wouldn't look at him and say, well, there's God. 
Maybe if you saw him do something miraculous, but there was nothing just by looking at his form that would speak of him being God. In fact, over in Isaiah 53, when it's speaking prophetically of Jesus coming to this earth, it says that there was nothing that stood out about him. Nothing that stood out about him. So it says, he became, in a sense, God incognito. He laid aside willingly... In humble obedience to the Father, the praises of heaven, the position of heaven, the prerogatives of heaven. Christ temporarily, and that word temporarily is critical. Christ temporarily laid aside the free and voluntary exercise of the rights and privileges of deity. Now one example of this is found over in Matthew and in Mark when Jesus is talking about the end times. He's talking about the the second coming, his his return. And, And Jesus says, right now not even the Son knows. Only the Father knows. He limited his knowledge of that during his time on the earth. Now, of course, Jesus knows everything. He's in heaven. He knows all that now. But for a moment on this earth, he he willingly limited uh, aspects of his deity. He temporarily laid aside the free and voluntary exercise of the rights and privileges of deity. The emptying, therefore, the kenosis, the emptying, involved self-limitations as well as ultimate humiliation. Now think about this. Before Jesus Christ, listen to me, this is important. Before Jesus Christ took on humanity, there was no way God could die. Right? No way God could die. The fact that he took on humanity meant he could come and die. And his humanity, his, his humanity could be put to death. It's a big, big deal. So he voluntarily forfeited for a time, the free use of divine attributes, depending instead on his Father and the Holy Spirit. So that's a kind of a, a lengthy um, description of what it means that Jesus emptied himself, that this act of incarnation called for divine condescension. But now I want to give you a more poetic, uh, a more poetic uh, statement about the incarnation. This comes from R.G. Lee. R.G. Lee was a great Baptist preacher in the early to mid-1900s. He uh, pastored at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis. He, um, he was three-time president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He uh, three-time president of the Baptist World Alliance. He preached a famous sermon called Payday Someday. Preached it, I think, over 2,000 times. And he was just an awesome, awesome preacher. And he had a, this, this really, he had this gift for the English language and just utilizing words. And listen to what he says about the incarnation. Christ, this is about him condescending, Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom, and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the ancient of days who has become the infant of days. What a descent, condescension. What a descent. Listen, from the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth. From exaltation to humiliation. From the throne to the tree. From dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty, no room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature, woman, but in his descent was the dawn of mercy, 
because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. Isn't that good? That's the, the condescension of Christ. Think about what he left to come and take on humanity and live among us on this earth. And so, incarnation, Christ left the splendor and glory of heaven to take on human flesh. This act called for divine condescension. But third and last for tonight, this act, we're about to jump in some deep waters, but we're going to do it really fast, all right? This act united the divine nature and human nature in one person. So we're going to talk about why that's important. This act, incarnation, united the divine nature and human nature in one person. Now this doctrine of the, the, the uniting of humanity and divinity in one is called the hypostatic union. And the re- only reason I'm telling you that is because you may be reading a book and you come across that phrase or maybe see it in study notes or something of that nature. It's an important word. It's the combining of the divine nature, human nature in one person. Uh, person. There's a lot of discussion about that. There, uh, through hi- church history, there have been a lot of, um, of, of groups that have branched off from Orthodox Christianity because they misunderstand this and get this wrong and go down some kind of heretical roads. And, and, and so we need to be very clear what we mean by the divine and human were united in one person. Here, let me give you just kind of a, a thumbnail of what this means. First of all, it means that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. This means some things, but, but think about it for a moment. Jesus is fully God. He's not part God. He's not half God. He's not a third God. He is fully God. Um, and, and that's important to understand. There, again, there are groups uh, that do not believe this. There are groups that believe he was just a really, really awesome created being, but not God. He was kind of, he was maybe higher than, uh, higher than most humans, but he wasn't. He wasn't God himself. Jehovah's Witness, for example, believed that, uh, that he was, he was created being. Mormons believe he's a created being. Uh, but the Bible is very, very clear that Jesus is fully God. Uh, do you remember at the end of the Gospel of John? Remember, remember doubting Thomas? The other disciples were telling Thomas, Hey, listen, we've seen Jesus alive from the dead. He's, he's risen from the dead. And Thomas said, Listen... Unless I see the nail prints in his hands, I, the, the, the print in his I'm not going to believe. And one day he's in a room and Jesus walks in the room. And he sees Jesus resurrected in his glorified body. You remember what Thomas said? He fell down and he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. He worships him as God. And in that moment Jesus doesn't say, No, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not fully God. I'm just kind of... I'm a higher created being. He receives his worship because he is fully God. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus is fully? What does that mean for us? First of all, it means he's worthy of worship because he's God. and You should only worship God. You can worship Jesus because he's God. Look over in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to show you this really wonderful passage of Scripture. It's all about the person of Christ. And in Hebrews 1, he wants us to understand that Jesus is greater than angels. And he says, for to which, verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So God's saying here that Jesus is is superior to the angels because he's my son. He's the son of God. And he says there, again when he says, 
the, he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Now look at that word firstborn there in verse 6. Some people read that and think, well, okay, it says Jesus was firstborn. So that must mean that he was brought into existence at a point in time. Uh, in fact, you'll hear Jehovah's Witness and other people uh, use verses like this to speak of Jesus being a created being. But the word firstborn found there in verse uh, 6, it's also found in Colossians chapter 1, does not speak of Jesus being created. It speaks of his position or his preeminence. Over in uh, uh, Psalm 89, David, who was not literally the firstborn of his of his siblings, he was the youngest, he's called in Psalm 89 the firstborn. In other words, he's the preeminent one over all the other brothers. He's been given the, the throne. He's been given the kingdom. He rules and reigns. He is the, the firstborn in terms of importance. Look what he says. Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So look what it says there. God the Father is saying to the Son in verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God the Father calls God the Son what? God. He is divine. Fully divine. He's worthy of our worship. Secondly, He is Lord. Colossians 1.18 says that in all things he might, he, he, might have, he, he must have the preeminence. He is first. He is, he is Lord. He is preeminent over all. He is Lord. He's the authority. He calls the shots. He's the boss. And then third, because he is fully God, it means he is able to save by paying the infinite debt that we owe. He's able to save by paying the infinite debt that we, that we owe. 1 John 2 says that that Jesus is our Savior. But not just for us, but, but he, he died for the sins of the whole world. And so he died for everyone. Now, not everyone's saved. You've got to place your faith in Christ to be saved. You've got to receive the gift of salvation. But Jesus Christ died. He shed his blood for everyone. Only God could shed his blood and that, that shed blood be effective for everyone. He's divine. He had infinite... Uh, uh, the ability to pay the infinite debt that we owe. And then 1 Peter 1.18 says, and 19 says that his blood was precious blood. His blood was shed, and it was able to save sinners like me and like you. Here's what that means. God is infinite in his holiness. His, his holiness knows no boundaries, right? And because he's infinite, when you and I sin against God, we deserve infinite punishment. So only one who is infinite himself could come... And pay the penalty. Could pay the debt that we owe. The infinite debt. You couldn't pay it. I couldn't pay it. Jesus paid it for us because he is fully God. And so the hypostatic union means that Jesus, the God-man, he's fully God. Secondly, it means that Jesus is fully human. Fully human. This means three things very quickly. Number one, it means he was able to die as our substitute. So for Jesus to die for us and for justice to be carried out, because God is a God of justice, for humans to be forgiven, for their sins to be paid for, someone who was human himself had to die in our place. So Jesus had to take on humanity and justly die in the place of other humans. Romans 5.8 says that, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
He's our substitute. Secondly, because he's fully human, he modeled how we are to walk with God during his time on this earth. How did he, how did he walk with God? By living in obedient communion with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. By living in obedient communion with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus Christ being fully human, he could live out what it means to glorify God with your life. If you you want to know how to glorify God, if you want to know how to make a difference in the world, just look at Jesus. Look at his life. He he, he models, he, he exemplifies what it means to live a life that honors the Lord. So how did Jesus live his life? Let me show you two passages we'll be through. Look in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, speaking again to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Son do, the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And so Jesus is saying this, I live in lockstep with the Father. He shows me what he's doing, shows me what he wants me to do, and I do what he wants me to do. And we live in this relationship, this communion. We see Jesus uh, as a pattern getting away from the crowds and the business and spending extended time talking to the Father, praying, walking with God, obeying God, living for God. And so he lived in obedient, obedient communion with the Father. But notice that phrase, by the power of the Holy Spirit. People don't think about this often. You might look at the Gospels and say, where's the Spirit? The Spirit was empowering Jesus to live the life of obedience. Uh, Let me show you this. Look over in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. It's interesting to note that at the end of chapter 3, after Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. The people saw that and they heard a voice from heaven. The Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then in chapter 4 it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Notice that. Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now we know how that story goes, right? Jesus is tempted three times, and by the power of the Spirit and with the the Word of God, he resists the temptations of Satan, and he maintains his purity, his holiness, his perfection, so that he could go and die in the place of sinners like you and me. And so he is led by the Spirit uh, into the wilderness. He's, He's empowered by the Spirit throughout his ministry, and he shows us what it looks like to let the Spirit have control of our Lives and I've been I've been debating whether I should even share this knot or even go down this road, but I think I will. I'm going to give you just a quick illustration to kind of um, kind of drive this point home. Uh, there is a theological discussion, and you, you can walk into you know any seminary, and you'll find you know seminary students discussing this over the table or you know or, or hear a professor teaching it there are books that are reading, written on this and, and it's a very um, it's a very um, interesting topic and a deep topic and there's a lot of 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 information 
related to this topic, but the topic is, is, is a debate on the peccability versus the impeccability of Christ. Now, don't let all that, just ignore all that, but let me tell you what that means. It means that uh, there's a debate as to whether or not Christ could have sinned on this earth. Okay? Could Jesus Christ have sinned as God on earth? Could he have sinned? He was fully God, fully human, tempted by Satan. Could he have sinned? So those that believe that Jesus could have sinned, uh, that's called the doctrine of peccability. Uh, those that believe he could not have sinned, uh, that's the doctrine of impeccability. And again, there's a lot of discussion on this, and, and there, there are renowned Bible scholars who uh, come down on different sides of, of that discussion and have different things they bring to the table but I read a book uh, years ago called The Man Christ Jesus by a theologian named Bruce Ware. And it really helped me to, to nail this down. And it, and it brings me back to that last point about Jesus Christ living in communion with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's the illustration. And I'm going to come back to that. All right. The illustration is, um, imagine you are uh, at, at the English Channel and you're in a boat. And you are in the boat beside a famous, renowned, distant swimmer. And this distant swimmer is going to swim the English Channel. It's been done before, but they're going to, I think it's what, 40-something miles across the English Channel. They're going to swim the English Channel. And you are there in the boat, and the, and the boat's job is to protect the swimmer. from. So if the swimmer gets, you know, cramps up and gets in some sort of, Distress, they won't drown. You can pick them up out of, or you know, maybe shark attack or stingray or whatever. If something happens, you're there to, to help them in a time of distress. And so, so the boat's there, the swimmer's there, you're watching out over them. Uh, the swimmer makes it all the way across the English Channel. Now, the question is could that swimmer have drowned? The answer is no, because you were there to. Pick them up out of the water. They got in trouble, you pick them up out of the water, right? But why didn't that swimmer drown? Because they trained, they were in shape, they put in the work, they, they breathed the breath, they, their muscles carried their arms and legs throughout the entire process to be able to propel them across the English Channel. So could the person have drowned? No. Why didn't they drown? Because they put forth the, the strength and the effort to make it across the English Channel. You say, now, what's that got to do with peccability versus impeccability? Here's what it's got to do. Could Jesus have sinned as God? Those that say no would say he couldn't have sinned because he was fully God. And his, his divinity, his deity, would have, would have stopped him from sinning. But the question is, well, why didn't Jesus sin? Was it because his deity just overruled every impulse, uh, every temptation, or not impulse, but every temptation that came his way? Was his deity just, just say, oh, nope, not going there. You're not going to sin. Is that why he didn't sin? No, the reason he didn't sin is because Jesus, Matthew 4, Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit according to the Word of God. He used the Word and the Spirit to live a sinless life, which means, which means... If we follow his example, power of the Spirit, Word of God, we have the capacity, the capacity to say no to sin and yes to God, right? Because Jesus did it. Not just because he was God on earth. He did it in his humanity showing us how you fight sin. 
by the Spirit, and by the Word of God. Does that make sense? So, I, I, if, you, if you held a gun to my head, which I hope you don't do that, but if you did that, I, would, I, would, I hold to the, the uh, impeccability camp that Jesus Christ could not have sinned on this earth, but the reason he did not sin was because in his humanity... He lived by the Spirit according to the Word of God. He was tempted every way like we are, but he did not sin. He fought that, that temptation. He fought that, that, that lurement with the, the help of the Spirit and the Word of God. And so, again, I didn't, I, I don't, I didn't really want to open up that can, but there's a lot of discussion. You can Google peccability versus impeccability if you want to uh, and get some good reading tonight. Uh, but... but Bringing it all back down to this, this uh, sheet, Jesus lived in his humanity to show us what it looks like to live the Christian life. And that's one of the implications of him being human. So, a lot of good stuff tonight, but Jesus, the person of Christ, has always existed. But then he came to this earth, took on human flesh, and became the God-man. And by the way, Jesus is forever the God-man. He'll never cease being the God-man. He took on human flesh. He died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead in human form, right? He, he was raised with a new glorified body. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he is right now the God-man. When he comes back, he'll be the God-man, fully God, fully man. He'll forever be the God-man, the one we worship in heaven, and we should rejoice in that reality. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your grace and your mercy and your love and grateful for this time to... Think about the scriptures and think about how they apply to our lives. And I just pray, God, that you would um, just fill our hearts with a growing love and adoration for King Jesus. It's all about him. We're grateful that as, as fully man, Jesus could take our place. And we're grateful that as fully God, he could pay the penalty that we deserve to pay. The infinite debt that we owe, he could make that payment with his precious blood. We're grateful for that. We love you tonight and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.